Good morning. Would you please pray with me? Prepare us, Lord, to receive your word, if not by our ears, then by our eyes, or if not by our eyes, then by our mouths, for we know that you want us to taste, see, and hear of your goodness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 2009, Oxford University Press published a book entitled Soul Searching, a landmark sociological study of religion and faith in American teenagers. One of its significant findings was that many American teens described their own faith as moralistic, by which they meant that religion to them was about being a good person. The theme had prevailed also in the data collected in 2007 by the College Transition Project, capturing how teenagers around the United States who had been involved in youth group described their faith as they transitioned out of high school. For most of them, the purpose of religion was to create good people. These teenagers believed God cared most of all about how they acted. They knew the rules, don't use drugs, keep your clothes on, modify swear words until they're not quite swear words. They believed that these rules showed what a Christian should and should not do. Being a good Christian meant being a good person. And by being a good person, God would be happy with them. This data was collected from teenagers around 2007, which means that those teens are now likely in their 30s. Some of them might be raising children or teenagers of their own. What we know, either from trends that um, are shown by the Pew Research Center or from our own life experience, is that many people who were brought up practicing a faith are now not raising their children to have a religious faith of their own. While there are different reasons for this, pastor and parent Meredith Miller suspects that one of the reasons is that parents may feel unsure or uncomfortable about how to nurture a faith that will help and not harm their children. For example, even though they likely want their children to grow up to be good people, they probably don't want their children to grow up believing that faith is all about do's and don'ts. Even when the do's and don'ts on the list are not unreasonable, they probably don't want their children to think that God's love for them is dependent on whether they follow those rules. They probably don't want their children to grow up with moralistic faith. In her book, Woven, Meredith Miller makes the case that if we don't want to reduce religion to moralism and the Bible to morality, to a morality-producing manual, rather than teaching kids to be good, we need to help them to get to know the God who is good. 
This requires giving up a moralistic approach to faith and taking up what she calls a trust-based approach to faith. As a parent, she says, my hope is for my child to discover that because of who God is, God can be trusted. I couldn't help but notice that in our scripture lesson this morning, we see something similar happening in the psyche of ancient Israel. For a long time, the ancient Israelites have been under the impression that God cares most about their righteousness, their morality. In fact, over a period of 160 years, they have undergone turmoil and suffering, and they interpret it all as punishment for their sins. The once conquering Assyrian Empire collapsed and the Babylonian Empire rose to its, in its place. Israel's beloved King Josiah died and his death was followed by near anarchy. Most devastatingly, Jerusalem was destroyed, the city razed and the temple burned. And finally, Jews with any status, education or skill were deported to Babylon where they live in exile. All of this has been understood by the people of God as Yahweh's judgment upon them for their sins. In their psyche, because of their immorality, God punished them and was still punishing them by disregarding them. Now, finally, after all this time of silence and seeming disregard, at chapter 40, which Kay read to us, God spoke again to Israel. What God said to them and the fact that God was even speaking to them must have been quite disorienting. It couldn't have made sense in their moralistic framework. They likely expected more of the same punishment. No response from God, no one to comfort them, no protector, no one to intervene, no one powerful enough to make a difference. Instead, God referred them to what they should already have known about who God is. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? All this rhetoric took them back to the ABCs of their faith, that God is the creator. Amen. A few verses earlier, God said, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed all the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who has done all that? Such words ring familiar, for elsewhere in the Bible too, God went back to the beginning to recite his amazing feats of creation. Remember the story of Job? Job suffered greatly and his complaint was bitter and long. 39 chapters, no, 30 chapters long. Out of a whirlwind, God answered Job with a rebuke, and his rebuke was essentially a passionate recitation of creation. 
God threw Job one rhetorical question after another. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Who stretched the line upon it? Who laid its cornerstone? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you give the horse its might? Is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars? For 129 verses, God went on and on, setting Job on a course of cosmic discovery so stunning that Job was jerked out of his lament and left speechless. Job, too, had been caught up in a moralistic view of God and faith. He, too, lived by the idea that God cares most about whether we are good and live righteously. As a corrective to both Job's moralistic framework and the moralism of ancient Israel, God went back to his incomparable feats in creation. Why do you think God points back to the stories of creation when we get stuck in our moralistic ruts? I think it's because God's activity in creation tells us certain things about who God is. And those things inspire in us a resilient trust in God. Moralism does not help our faith to be resilient in the face of suffering. A moralistic faith is not going to survive the ups and downs of life it's inevitable disappointments and hardships. Pain or hardship will only lead to the conclusion either that I must not have been good after all or that God must not be good after all. Neither of these conclusions will lead to a resilient faith. Only trust based on who God is can do that. God referred to his incomparable feats in creation, I think, because in creation, God reveals who he is, things about God's self that are trustworthy. First of all, in the creation story, we learn that God is incomparably powerful. There is no one whose actions are as great and powerful, certainly not the other deity options presented by the Babylonians. The gods of Babylon are mere idols created by artisans, whereas Yahweh is the creator. Verses 18 to 20 drive this point home. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A workman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. As a gift, one chooses mulberry wood, wood that will not rot, then seeks out a skilled artisan to set up an image that will not topple. An incomparably powerful and great God is a God that inspires our trust. But greatness or power by itself is not worthy of our trust. In the creation story, we also learn that God is good. Only a good creator would lovingly create everything, intending it all to be good, 
and at the end, when creation was finished, would see that it was very good. Because God is good, we can trust in God's incomparable power. In the creation story, we also learn that God is with us. While God is surely mysterious, God is not some all-powerful creator who remains at a distance from us. God enjoys creation with us, walks with us in the garden, is a companion to us. And in Jesus Christ, God came to dwell with us in flesh and blood. The knowledge that God desires to be with us inspires our trust in God. There are other attributes of God that we come to know through the Bible, through Jesus, and in nature. Sometimes, however, we act as if God is or should be simple. Though we think of ourselves as quite complicated, we are somehow surprised when we find contradictions in the Bible about who God is. For example, how can God be both just and forgiving? If the point of faith is to trust God based on who God is, we've got to figure out how we can hold together attributes of God that are in tension with one another. This is a question that Meredith Miller addresses so elegantly by providing the image of a spider web to act as a metaphor for faith. What if, she asks, we were to think of faith not as a wall built on a sturdy foundation of knowledge and facts and then layered with yet more knowledge and facts, but instead as a web? You've seen spider webs. They vary in shape and size, but they share in common certain features. Anchor strands that hold the web in place. Those anchor strands that hold the web in place. And then the internal strands that give the web shape, texture, and beautiful complexity. <clears throat> Meredith Miller imagines anchor threads affixing to who God is including the attributes that live in dynamic tension with one another. She imagines the internal threads to be the less essential, but still important beliefs and practices that give our, shape, that, that give our faith its unique shape. Together, the anchor threads and the internal threads create something that is incredibly resilient. This is precisely why Meredith Miller thinks it is such a helpful image for our faith. She writes, a web is a spider's home, its source of nourishment, its protection. A web is also a spider's way of adapting to the endlessly complex, maddeningly unpredictable, frighteningly unstable world in which it lives. When a web breaks because of strong winds or because someone has just walked through it, the rest of the web is more able to flex without breaking. And the spider can more easily repair the broken parts and not have to rebuild from scratch. Using this metaphor for our faith as our understanding of God, 
the Bible and the world grow and are challenged by our life experiences, our whole faith does not have to be deconstructed and then reconstructed. The resilient portions of our faith can stay intact while we do the work of reweaving new strands. Too often we have thought of faith formation as building a wall instead of weaving a web. The problem, of course, is that when later in our lives one of the stones in the wall gets exposed as not being true or not being true in the way we thought it was, we may think that we have to tear down the whole wall and rebuild from scratch. Or that we have to remove the stones we no longer hold as true, and by doing so, the whole wall collapses. I have seen this happen to people's faith. Perhaps you have too. I have also seen resilient faith. I saw friends in college whose strands of literalism broke. But by continuing to trust in the God we meet in scripture, their faith remained intact while they found new ways to interpret scripture. Through the book of the prophet Isaiah, all of us have witnessed the resilience of the ancient Israelites' faith. Even though their moralistic understanding gave way, they continued to be anchored in their belief that God is incomparably powerful, that God is good, and that God is with us. Faith is ultimately trust. How do we form a faith that will endure a lifetime or over many lifetimes? This is the work of the church. You and I carry that responsibility to weave a resilient faith for ourselves, to do our best to nurture a faith that others don't have to heal from, and to be willing to repair and reweave threads where old threads could no longer hold.